we want, as Zoe said at the beginning, students to be asking, not as they're graduating from high school, what job do I want in the world, but what problem do I want to solve in the world? And if they are looking at being able to solve problems, they will always be employed. And they will, more importantly, feel a sense of purpose and joy in what they're doing. Hello, and welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, where you'll hear one aha moment after another from people around the world who are making the most remarkable changes. In our future, I tell you, there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that is going so under-celebrated. But here on the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast, you're going to hear from some of the leaders in these movements. You know, what I'm trying to feature on this podcast is that people solving some of the world's most vexing problems, they still think the future is bright. And that's a perspective that we need way more of. You know, people like the folks I'm going to interview today. Oh my gosh, I can't wait to get this inter- to this interview. They find ways to get around obstacles that you and I can use. They see all kinds of setbacks as opportunities. We can do that too. So welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. I'm Dr. Linda Ulrich, founder of the Goodness Exchange, where you can find all sorts of reasons to believe that it is still an amazing world and you can find your role in it. So today we are going to welcome a couple of amazing people that I've come across. We are going to talk to an education visionary, Zoe Weil, and a lifetime educator and award-winning superintendent, Steve Cochran. They are president and executive director of the Institute for Humane Education. And we're going to talk about that term, humane education, and why it is so relevant now. But I wanted to tell you how I came across these two great thought leaders. So Zoe has a TED Talk from 2011 that I came across because I'm really passionate about the fact that we've got to to engage a new way, a reimagining of education to get the best out of our potential in the future. So I came across a TED Talk that Zoe Weil did in 2011, and it hit me between the eyes. Her ideas, oh, a concept that we're going to talk a lot about today, about creating solutionaries in our children. This concept was about 10 years ahead of its time, but that is true of all of the great visionaries. they they come to things long before the rest of it. But now after the, the pandemic, we all can see the value of her, her notions crystal clear. And her executive director at the Institute for Human Education, Steve, he was once a dean at Princeton and quit that job to go be a fourth grade teacher. I mean, this is a pair of thinkers way outside the box who are talking about a topic that's relevant to every single one of us, whether you're a parent or grandparent or just a community member who wants the best in the future, our shared future. We are here with two people that have some great ideas about how we get there. So Zoe and Steve, welcome to the Conspiracy of Goodness podcast. Thank you, Linda. Thank you so much, Linda. We're delighted to be here. Well, we're going to navigate this conversation. I got to say, I've done uh, about 90 episodes of this podcast, and I never have introduced or interviewed two people at one time. So bear with us. Bear with me. I, I've got some some idea of who's the best person to ask question after question to, but we'll just navigate this like we're sitting around the kitchen table. Does that sound okay? Sounds like fun. Okay, great. Great, great, great. Okay. So throughout our conversation today, we're going to reference a book that Zoe Weil wrote, which I think, you know, the title says it all. The world becomes what we teach. I don't know if there's a sentence that's more powerful than that these days after what we've been through with the pandemic. So in that book, Zoe comes by a term that I have been giving you credit for. Do your ears burn a couple times each day, Zoe? You came across a term that I'm, I'm giving you credit for day after day. A term she uses is called solutionaries, creating solutionaries out of children as they go through the education process. So I think we've got to start there because that word, you know, visionary is good. I I love to be called a visionary. You're a visionary. But, you know, solutionary is what we need from our children. It's this ability to critically think and creatively think, strategize and all the things that we're going to talk about. So talk to me, though, about this topic. What exactly is a solutionary? 
Uh, well, first, I'm glad that you're using the word because I love the word too. And I did not create the word, but I probably can take credit for helping the word spread more than maybe anybody else. But that's going to change because the word solutionary is going to be on the tip of everybody's tongue and it's going to be in the dictionary. And and it's because this concept is so critically important for our time. So what a solutionary is, is somebody who can identify unjust and unsustainable and inhumane systems and then transform them in ways that do the most good and the least harm for everyone. And when I say for everyone, I mean people, I mean other species and the environment. And the term, while it's made up, is something that almost everybody, you know, from the moment they hear it, gets a sense of. And a lot of people really love it because it, it just intuitively makes sense to be a solutionary to try to solve problems. But there are some very specific qualities to being a solutionary that are important important to sort of drill into. And one of them is that a solutionary is not the same thing as a humanitarian. So we need humanitarians in the world. We need, for example, to be helping people in Ukraine right now. And when there are wildfires burning and people are losing their homes, we need to help them. And when there are animals who are suffering, we need to help them. And when there's trash all over, we need to clean it up. But those kinds of efforts do not stop the injustices and the suffering and the destruction to begin with. A solutionary identifies the causes of problems, both the systemic causes, meaning the societal systems that perpetuate them, as well as the root causes, which are our mindsets, our values, our belief systems. And then a solutionary looks for leverage points to create systemic change. And the way they do that is to be looking at all the potential unintended negative consequences and making sure that solutions, again, do the most good and the least harm for people, animals, and the environment. That, that trifecta, recognizing the inherent worth and value of all living beings. There's so much in the revolutions that human beings have already created and experienced through time. I don't think envisioning a world like you just described where children are taught that from kindergarten, is that hard to imagine? I think kids come by it naturally, that kind of mentality, right? Yes and no. I think that there are a lot of forces that come into play with our human nature. One of the forces that comes into play is penchant for either or thinking, for black and white thinking, for taking sides. And that gets reinforced in our culture in numerous ways. It's reinforced in the media. It's re reinforced in our political system. It's even reinforced in schools through the ubiquity of debate teams, you know, where children are asked to take a side or even be assigned to a side, whether they agree with it or not, and then argue with the goal of winning. Solutionary thinking is so different from that. And it isn't the go-to in our society, either for parents or for teachers or for students or for anybody else. It needs to be taught. And at the Institute for Humane Education, that is our goal. It's to teach this kind of thinking and then help young people put it into practice through action so that they understand what it means to be a solutionary. And then when they graduate, no matter what careers they pursue, no matter what professions they go into, they will know that it is their job to ensure that the systems within their profession are sustainable, just, and humane. And they will know that and will have practiced that. And the reason why we are focused on education, the education system, is because we believe that it is the root system underlying all other societal systems. And that if we graduate a generation of solutionaries, then the problems that we face in the world will inevitably be solved by this generation. 
Okay, so this is a foundational concept, I think, to uh, and something we can get really excited about the future because we can we can influence young minds. We can make sure that they're that they're tuned up right from the beginning. Like I love the part that you said where you where they're prepared to be this way in their working life because they've done it over and over and over again. That's how they they learn. So Steve, chime in here and help us understand the how. Uh, I think Zoe's given us a real good feel for the why. Talk to me about the how. Well, I actually would love to to build on the, the why and why now. Great. Why okay, now. Great. Because as you said, it's, it, her, her TED Talk was, was uh, 10 years too early. And the reason that I'm doing this work, Linda, the reason that I stepped out of retirement to collaborate with, with Zoe and the Institute for Humane Education is because I don't think there's ever been a point in history when we have needed more to have our young people prepared to be a generation of solutionaries and the next caretakers of our planet. And, you know, solutionaries, they, they look at the world as it is through critical thinking and, and evidence-based uh, facts, but they also look at the world as they hope it will be more just, more healthy, more humane. And we want our students to do both. And particularly now, because if we look at the past two years, and the experience of our students in our schools, they've seen a world that's been debilitated by disease. They have witnessed and many are experiencing racism and inequity. They are very aware and seeing and feeling the effects of, of climate change. They are watching right now on, on their news feeds, the atrocities of war playing out in real time. And they are, as Zoe mentioned, they're also seeing the, the polarization of our society and of our leaders. And so we're not solving the problems. And there, and for kids, this is a, a time of heightened um, anxiety and depression. And so what a gift we can give them if we can give them agency and optimism by giving them the tools to be those caretakers of the planet, by giving them the tools to solve some of the problems that they are seeing in their world, in their communities, in their country. And so, you know, that is, that's our mission really is to, is to elevate the mission of schools to focus on not just preparing kids for a career or for college, but on preparing them to, to solve problems that are meaningful and important to them. Yeah, you know, one of the things that you talk about is that, you know, facts and the knowledge base of things that we might memorize or otherwise learn is changing. It changed so fast now. that, And that's that's what school was built to sort of reinforce was facts. And now we need a different kind of mind. Talk to us about this idea that that we'd be better off sort of building building a way of thinking, a mindset, a strategy of mindsets so that people can learn whatever is important to know in a given time period going forward. So I'm going to jump in with that one, but I want to build on what Steve just said, and I want to do so by telling you a story. Right. So a number of years ago, I was invited to speak to a middle school in Connecticut. And I asked the kids, this was, this was about 10 years ago now, I asked the kids what they thought were the biggest problems in the world. These were fifth and sixth graders, and they filled up a whiteboard with problems. And they were the same kinds of problems that adults name. And they weren't being taught about these problems in school. They just knew about them because we can no longer protect children, even young children, from the ills of the world. It's too, there's too much information out there. And so we can't keep them from knowing. So they know. So after the whiteboard was filled up, I asked these students to raise their hands if they could imagine us solving the problems that they'd listed. And of the 45 kids in the room, only five raised their hands that they could even imagine us solving the problems that they named. So I realized I had to change things up because this was not okay to have these fifth and sixth graders already so hopeless. And and the reason why I want to tell this story now is because of what Steve was just talking about, about how important this is for young people. So I asked them to close their eyes and I did a guided visualization with them in which I asked them to imagine that they were very old and approaching the end of a very long and well-lived life. And I asked them to imagine themselves on a beautiful day, sitting on a park bench 
and the air was clean and the birds were singing, the waterways around them were clean. And by the end of their life, there hadn't been a war in decades and nobody went to bed hungry because they had no choice. And we had learned to treat each other and other species with respect and compassion. And then I asked them to imagine that a child comes up and joins them on the park bench. And the child has been learning history in school and learning about much darker times, times that they'd lived through. And the child had all sorts of questions about how did things change to become better? And then the child asked this final question, what role did you play in helping to bring about this better world? And so while these kids still had their eyes closed, I asked them to imagine how they would answer that child's question. And then, still with their eyes closed, I asked them to raise their hands if now they could imagine us solving the problems they'd listed on the whiteboard. And this time, 40 hands went up in the air. It didn't take much to restore their hope. What it took was their own feeling that they would be involved in creating a better world, that they would have agency, and that such a world was possible. So that happened in Connecticut. A couple of years later, I was invited uh, while I was speaking at a conference in Mexico to speak to a fifth grade class while I was there. And I asked those kids if they could imagine us solving the problems in the world. And every hand flew up in the air immediately. So what was different? What was different was the teacher. Their teacher that the teacher in Mexico had been teaching them about problems in the world, specifically environmental problems in age-appropriate ways. And the kids were involved in solving those problems. So the school had installed solar panels. They had created a composting system and they were no longer using disposable plastic water bottles. They knew problems could be solved because they had been active in solving them. This is why, this is one of the reasons why learning to become a solutionary is such a win-win. It's a win for these children. It is a win for our communities and our classrooms and our schools. And it's a win for the world. There is really nothing that is more important than educating young people in this way, which gets to your, your question, which is we used to teach facts, right? You used to, I, I mean, when I was in school, I'm 60 years old. When I was in school, I had to memorize and memorize and memorize and regurgitate these facts. Well, we don't need to do that now. Children have computers in their pockets that have all the facts in the world. What they need to be able to do is to be able to think critically, to be able to be systems thinkers and strategic thinkers and creative thinkers. And they need to be able to do really good research and investigation so that they are not parroting misinformation and disinformation, but that they can understand what's true. They need to be able to understand many different points of view and to be able to communicate across many divides so that they can work collaboratively to solve the problems that we face in ways that work for all. And that doesn't require memorizing things. What it requires is really good thinking capacities. I love that you call it in the book, you call it transferable skills that, that we should be teaching transferable skills. <laughs> I never really thought about the difference. It, it makes perfect sense the way you explain in the book and the, in fact, the way you just did. Steve, talk to me about transferable skills. Teaching for transfer is the highest level of teaching in schools. We, we want our, our students to be able to take information and process it in one discipline, but then be able to use those same sort of critical thinking skills or systems thinking skills, creative thinking, and apply it in multiple disciplines, which is why you see some of the best educational systems continuing, yes, to give kids some knowledge base in, in math, in science, in language arts and social studies, but then providing students with opportunities to, to make meaning across disciplines and by giving them sort of an interdisciplinary experience with a problem that's meaningful to them. So you see this in, in the U.S. with problem-based learning, which is a, a higher level approach that many schools are doing successfully. You see it in Finland with their phenomenon-based approach where kids are picking either a, a natural phenomenon, either something beautiful like transformation of a caterpillar to a butterfly, but then looking at, well, how is a butterfly being threatened by the environment or looking at 
natural disasters, the, the um, increase of wildfires, for example. They could be looking at, at human issues, at social issues. In Finland, they may be looking at the Holocaust. In our country, we might be looking at, at, at a phenomenon like racism. And students are then being able to identify a problem that's meaningful to them and use these skills to, to come up with solutions, to do it in a collaborative way, but it's deepening their thinking. So the solutionary approach is not a deviation from the curriculum or from good instruction. It's actually a deepening of it because you're focusing on the systems connections that Zoe talked about, and you're also developing students' ethical analysis as they begin to, to think about what is the impact of any one solution on, on people, on animals, on the environment. They're asking the, the, the fundamental question, who does this system, who, does it, who is this problem benefiting and who is it harming? And as they're beginning to think in that ethical way, they are coming up with more creative and more sustainable solutions. And that's the kind of learning transfer we want. We want, as Zoe said at the beginning, students to be asking, not as they're graduating from high school, what job do I want in the world, but what problem do I want to solve in the world? And if they are looking at being able to solve problems, they will always be employed. And they will, more importantly, feel a sense of purpose and joy in what they're doing. It's an aspirational way that seems really, really doable, timely, you know, approachable. It's just not that hard. I I can remember um, when I was way before I ever started in the Goodness Exchange, I created a thank you note. I don't know where this came to me one day, but it was some really, really kind patient. I've learned more from my patients than they they ever got out of me. But this patient made me think one day that I wished or I could imagine a world where when you ask someone what they do, they knew that you meant what they do for others and everyone would have something to say. That's beautiful. This is an ethos that I think what I noticed, this enormous wave of goodness and progress that I mentioned in the opening of the podcast is something very real. It's something that we see on our team at the Goodness Exchange in particular, because we've all finally honed our algorithms. But you are suggesting a way of, <laughs> insta- uh, let's see, let me ask this, this question to you. I've talked to other educators and what I've noticed in the conversation is that we optimize what we optimized for education wise seems to be left somewhere 200 years ago or maybe 300. And we optimize for creating factory workers. And a lot of our educational system is around, is built around optimizing for something that we, that doesn't match what we need now. And this optimizing is a term I learned uh, about the internet uh, when I, in my 10-year journey doing this, but I think it applies to almost every discipline. What do we optimize for <laughs> and how have our needs changed and what are we doing about that change? It's, no, it's a great, it's, it's, it's a great uh, example you give. And the, the school systems in our country, in America, we're based on the factory model. Henry Ford's you know, assembly line. So you picture kids on an assembly line, kindergarten through 12th grade, they're all getting the same standardized curriculum, the same standardized tests. They're all moving at the same pace. And that is not how human beings learn. They all learn in not on the same way, not on the same day. There's it's a social activity. They learn through multiple intelligences. And so we as educators need to acknowledge that and lean into a new way of teaching. And many are already. I mean, I, I'm, I applaud the, the teachers that may be listening to this podcast and, and the work that they are doing to create meaningful experiences for students, social experiences for students, but high level learning. I mean, I think that's what I take away from what Zoe's talking about. When we're talking about systems thinking and strategic thinking, those are not typically what schools are focused on. And she is has a vision for deepening the learning that's taking place. At the same time, it also begins with compassion. And that is a starting point where we're helping students develop compassion for others, for, for animals, for the environment, for our planet, and then identify problems that they care about, causes that are meaningful to them. That's sort of the first phase. And when they have that sense of meaning, now the learning is so much easier. So in, in, in Princeton, where I was um, superintendent, we did an assessment of our, of our kits 
about their sort of level of engagement. And we gave um, all of our high school students a survey, and we found that there were these three levels of engagement. One was that the highest level was affective engagement, where students were intellectually engaged, but also engaged with their hearts. They loved what they were learning. They weren't picking courses because it looked good on a college transcript. They were just, they were picking courses because they just wanted to learn that topic. And then the next level was sort of behavioral engagement where kids were showing up to school, they were doing their homework, you know, they were asking questions, but they were participating in class. They were going through the motions, but they weren't affectively engaged with their, they weren't loving learning. And then you had a group that was disengaged. And what we learned is that most of our kids were doing school, like they were, they were behaviorally engaged. And when you're behaviorally engaged, you are not learning at the same level as when you are affectively engaged. And that's what we want for our kids and for our educators. It's not always good to be managing a factory if that's the way, you know, the system that an educator is teaching it. They want to be engaged too in this, this, this meaningful work. That's why they entered the profession was to change the world. And so this model allows for, for that. And it can be implied in so many ways. As you said, it doesn't have to be like, there's not one way to do this. It, it, teachers have the freedom to, to do it in all kinds of ways. So it could be a week out of the curriculum where eighth graders are now focusing on the UN sustainable goals. And they're working in groups and researching them um, around climate action and oceans and poverty and access to water. And they're finding issues within their own community where those, those um, goals are, are, are playing out and they're, they're learning about them. They're developing solutions. And what's nice about this approach is that it's also education in action because then they come up with, with approaches and they are talking to their school board or their, their town about changes that can happen. So they're, and they're really seeing their own agency when they do that. So, I mean, it can happen in a week or two and, and move through students through the process, or it can be uh, something as simple as just asking students to, to jot down on a three by five card, like a problem I want to see solved in in my world, in my, in my community, in my school is. And just letting them develop a sense of vision around needs and compassion. Jot those, they fill out the card, it goes on a bulletin board, and then it may be they want to see, you know, it's the food in the cafeteria, the quality of the food in the cafeteria, or the quality of air in the world. Could be, you know, a child who's being bullied at recess or the war in Ukraine. And, you know, those are the problems they're identifying. And then the teacher is able to help them figure out problems that they actually can address because not every child is going to be in a position to solve the major problems in the world, but they can begin to think in those ways. And the teacher can then integrate some of their issues, concerns, hopes into the curriculum. And that could be in social studies, it can be in, in science, it can be in language arts where kids are reading and writing and researching. It can even be in art where students are expressing their concerns and their hopes in an artistic way. Yeah, this is, I mean, that's the gist of what I got out of the book is that it's a whole range of possibilities that are not a one size fits all. That's <laughs> quite the opposite of how the education system is sort of stuck. Maybe that's why it was so hard to get through our, the education complexities of the pandemic, because most teachers have a heart for knowing that this child has to be approached this way and this yeah. one learns best that way. And boy, having to do things like this virtually it probably was incredibly disheartening and it probably took away some of the very best emotional and, and strategic tools that most good teachers had figured out for themselves, how to reach Jason this way and Tanya this way and so forth. Yeah. So I think this, the big picture here is, is going to get us to graduating most more happy children is what I hear in the very hundred thousand foot look. So let's take a break and when we come back. We'll talk about your notions about how we graduate more happy children, more children who can live with joy and purpose. So let's take a break. Dr. Linda here. If you are hoping the world is a lot better than what we see on the news and social media, and if you've been overwhelmed by the misery and negativity coming from the screens in your life, I've got a wonderful connection for you. What I've learned after almost a decade of curating the internet for insight and innovation is that there is an enormous wave of goodness and progress well underway in the world that almost no one knows about yet. And that's what led me to create this podcast. 
And then I co-founded the Goodness Exchange. The Goodness Exchange is an amazing place on the internet now where you can enjoy unlimited access to hundreds of articles that give you a more complete, positive perspective about the state of the world. You can listen to exclusive bonus content from this podcast with our guests who are knee-deep in solving some of the world's most vexing problems, and yet they still think the future is bright. We need to know what they know. And at the Goodness Exchange, you can explore a feed of exclusively good news and recommended other kinds of content created by the Goodness Exchange community. No one with good ideas and good intentions need feel alone again. You are right to hold out hope for humanity. Millions of people are out there creating a better world, and we have created a gathering place for all that wonder. Who knows what's possible now that there's a place on the internet created to bring out our best impulses and our collective genius. To explore the home for goodness on the internet, visit goodness-exchange.com backslash membership. Thanks. Okay, we're back. And we have an incredible pair of folks here talking to us, helping us sort of see aspirationally what's possible with education next. Uh, Lord knows most of us understand the complexities of education during the pandemic, but those complexities were probably uh, many of them there originally. (laughs) The pandemic that I have two kids um, that are engineers, and they always say you most learn what needs to be fixed when it's falling apart. So let's look at this question of joy and and purpose. Which one of you wants to... uh, First, I'd like to really give people a concrete example of the kind of time spent in the classroom that you guys would advocate for. I love your example of the t-shirt. Like, where does a t-shirt actually come from? The real cost of a t-shirt. That's what it is. Like, you would teach kids at all kinds of ages to sort out these complex details. And God knows that would make amazing consumers out of them. It would make and consumers drive everything. Talk to us about the real cost of a t-shirt and how this would help kids sort out all kinds of other issues in their lives. So we have an activity that is so flexible and it's called True Price. And with True Price, you can look at anything. You can look Mm -hmm. at a t-shirt, you can look at a fast food burger, you can look at disposable water bottle, you can look at an electronic device and you ask, what are the effects of this item on ourselves as individual consumers, on other people, on animals and on the environment? That's the first question. And that question by itself is so big that it it could be an entire elective course. You know, it can get integrated into the science curriculum, the math curriculum, the language arts and social studies curriculum, all by itself, just those questions. But then you ask more questions, which include what are the systems that perpetuate this product and make it so ubiquitous? And Then you ask, what systems would need to change to make alternatives that do more good and less harm commonplace? So in the example of a t-shirt, I have often done this in a classroom where I've had the students, whatever shirt they're wearing, look on neighbors, on the the tag behind the neighbor's shirt and and see what information they can find. And, you know, you're going to find what it's made out of. You're going to find the brand. You might find washing instructions and you're going to find out where it was made. I don't know why the where it was made is this one piece of information that we've decided should be on our clothing. But when you ask a classroom that you're going to hear, you know, a dozen different countries in a small classroom, just because our clothes are made all over. But but what do you know from that? Not much. All you know from that is the factory where this product was put together. If it's a cotton t-shirt, you don't know where the cotton was grown. You don't know the kinds of pesticides that were sprayed on that those cotton fields. You don't know who were working in those cotton fields. And cotton, much of it is produced still using slave labor, using children in other countries working as slaves. I mean, there's no other nice way to say it. And then the cotton goes somewhere else. It gets dyed. Well, what about the dyes? Well, maybe the dyes are toxic to the environment. Maybe they're getting into our water stream because dye doesn't all adhere to the fabric and much of it winds up in our water stream. 
was the dye tested for, you know, its chemical components and its toxicity? Well, if it was, it was going to be tested on animals. And that means that those chemicals might have been dripped into the eyes of conscious rabbits and force fed to them in quantities they kill and smeared on their abraded skin. And we haven't even gotten to the part where we're in a factory and somebody's putting it together. And then when, you know, what are the conditions in the factory? Who's working in the factory? Then what happens to it? You know, it's going to be put on a container ship and sent somewhere. You're going to have lots of advertising that's a brand name. And then you're going to go somewhere and you're going to get this item and you're wearing that t-shirt. Now, I've just shared a teeny bit of information. You can see the richness of this kind of investigation and you can do it with anything. And it is a gateway. Any single object is a gateway for learning about the world, learning about political systems, economic systems, ecosystems, transportation and energy systems, all of it. And ultimately, with the goal then of exploring, well, how could these processes for our clothing, for our food, for our electronics, how could these processes be humane and sustainable and just? What role can we play in creating different systems or intervening in a political system or an economic system that says no to sweatshops and no to slave labor and no to animal tests that are cruel and no to environmental destruction. And that kind of knowledge that students gain, oh my gosh, they're on fire learning about this. And it's relevant. Like they're all wearing clothes. They're all eating food. This is so relevant to their lives. And in the process, they are going to gain literacy skills, numeracy skills, scientific skills, and all of those skills that transfer that we talked about before. This is so exciting. <laughs> you can make that one. You can make that one very deliberate deep dive into probably hundreds of more aspects of that one T-shirt that you had time to mention here. You can make that a whole semester of science, math, history. Imagine learning history through the evolution of cotton and slavery and Laos and all. The, I mean, exactly. Yeah. So, so. I, I hope people really get a, a feeling for this term transferable because of how fleeting facts are and how fleeting even math. It's getting harder and harder to justify teaching certain big, complex, memorizable strategies to kids because technology just changes so fast. And as you pointed out, we're, we're all holding a computer in our hand. What was it Albert Einstein used to say? You'd never memorize anything you could look up. Well, now it's easier and easier to look up almost everything, except we can't even do it well if we don't have the critical thinking skills to know better questions to ask. Exactly. Talk to me about better questions, because I, my daughter is very, very interested in education. In fact, we have an education site that's still not incorporated yet into the Goodness Exchange called EWC Ed. It's a great, exciting place where we're connecting wonder to learning. But that's an aside. Her concept there was that we're not, we're, we need, we must infuse learning with a sense of wonder. Do you yep. see who go through this? First of all, this isn't just an aspirational idea. You're actually doing this in places, correct? Correct. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And that, <laughs> I feel like you've just given us an opportunity to talk about all that we have to offer to the listeners okay. here today. Yeah. So I, I do want to say something about the questions. I think that guiding, leading questions in the curriculum just lends itself to such rich education. So imagine if one question were, how can we ensure that everybody on earth has access to clean water? You know, some simple question like that will will cover every single category of learning and so many other questions will arise from it. And again, it makes learning so relevant and meaningful. So, you know, for people who are listening, whether or not you're an educator, we have loads of resources for people who want to learn more about humane education, which is the education about the integrated issues of human rights and environmental sustainability and animal protection with the goal of educating people to be solutionaries. We have free resources on our website, website which is humaneeducation.org. We have a solutionary micro-credential program for educators, and I'm using educators broadly because parents are educators too, right? You know, anybody who, everybody should think of themselves as an educator 
And this solutionary micro-credential, it's a 30-hour program that guides people through the concept of being a solutionary, using my book, The World Becomes What We Teach, and then going through the process themselves and practicing becoming a solutionary around an issue that they care about. And then finally, creating some action plan, some implementation plan to bring the solutionary framework to others. And it's a very affordable program. And for those who really want to dive deeply and really understand these integrated issues and and then bring them to the world, whether through classroom teaching or the arts or business or any other field, we have online graduate programs with Antioch University, which is a leader in progressive education. And we have an MA degree, an MED degree, a specialization in the doctoral program in education, as well as a graduate certificate. And you know, people can find out about our graduate programs by going to our website, humaneeducation.org. I'm glad you shared that with us because this is the kind of podcast episode that gets shared. This, you know, if you know an educator, I love this. The 30 hours to completely sort of revolutionize and evolve yourself into somebody you can make this kind of change in young kids' lives. Imagine this 30 hours of like for a daycare, would it be appropriate for daycare operators? Very well could be. We have we have a number of people who are in the program now who are early childhood educators running preschools and trying to look at it through the humane education lens. It's a wonderful opportunity for teams of teachers to come go through together. So if if parents want to encourage a few teachers at a school to go through, we, we know that, that, that we all learn better in groups and teachers are, are not alone. Teaching can sometimes be very isolating. So sometimes going through something like this as a team so you can implement it in your school and, and have a critical mass of, of teachers in a building who are have a humane education lens now and are trying to do some solutionary work with students, it's going to take hold much, much more quickly. So one of the things I was really inspired by was thinking about if your child or your grandchild or someone, some child, a neighbor child that you see not being, not being nurtured, if you could turn a kid on to any of the solutionary or all of the solutionary processes that you are elevating, you are nurturing, doesn't that give them like a million more choices as they grow up? Like I always taught my kids that money does not equate to happiness. But in some ways, it just it just gives you more choices. And choices are are so critical in a complex world like this, whether you have the choice to stay in a hotel or sleep on a park bench, whether you have the choice to use a dangerous kind of transportation or something that's not or, you know, whether you have the choice to do something you love or just get a job to pay the bills. Choices are it just one small choice can change your future. I can see this being applicable in our personal lives. If we taught kids how to be solutionaries through the lens of something just like you talked about, a semester, eight weeks, <laughs> discovering everything there is to discover about your teacher, that's a process that you could also apply in your personal life someday. If you're not getting along with your coworker or if you're thinking maybe you want a job with more purpose or meaning, you don't even know where to start. Being a, a solutionary solution is different than just coming upon a solution, right? What's a solutionary solution? So a solutionary, so we have a rubric to evaluate solutions on a solutionary scale from emerging to developing to solutionary to most solutionary. And and in order to be a truly solutionary solution, the solution has to address the root or systemic causes of the problem and do so in a way that does the most good and the least harm for everybody. So it has the fewest unintended negative consequences. So that's what defines something as solutionary. And to loop back to what you just said about choices, one of the things Steve was talking about earlier was this idea of students choosing a problem they care about to solve. And so we ask young people questions in the solutionary process. That first question is like, what issues most concern you? What what problem do you want to solve? But there are other questions too. And they include, what are you good at? And what do you love to do? And now it's not to say that a child knows all the things that they're good at. We adults don't know all the things that we're good at because there's, you know, so many things we haven't tried yet. But we know some of the things that we're good at. 
if we help young people to think of what am I good at in a much broader way than they are normally painted in schools. So they don't have to think, oh, I'm good at math or I'm good at writing. They can think, well, I'm, I'm good at listening. I'm good at staying calm in tense situations. I'm good at dancing. I'm good at sports. I mean, these, anything that we're good at, we can find the confluence, the place where it will meet a problem that we want to solve. And then we also need to ask, what do I love to do? Because sometimes we're good at things we don't actually love. And we we wind up following a trajectory because we're good at something, even if we don't love it. But if we can find the place where what we care about, what we're good at, and what we love to do meet, then honestly, our life is golden, right? Because then you're, all the pieces come together to live a life of, of purpose and joy and meaning. And then there's this other final question that we can ask ourselves if we find those places, which is, what do I need to learn? Because then we get to really deepen our knowledge and our skills so that we can put it all into practice. And this is an iterative process. This isn't one and done. You don't like ask a fourth grader and like, okay, now, you know, they're set or, or an eighth grader or a 12th grader or, or somebody with their PhD. This is a lifelong series of questions that enable us to continually have those choices that you just referred to, because the choices come from our deep investigation and learning and self-reflection. I love that statement that you just made about this is a lifelong process. This is the gift we're giving kids when we teach them critical thinking skills, I'm just remembering off the top of my head, creative thinking strategic thinking and systems thinking, which I do want to spend a minute with, but I've got to ask you something from the book. So I I just, the part that Zoe just mentioned, the four questions is something I will dog ear because I could see at my age or my kids are, you know, 22 to 27. They're all just starting in the working world. I have one graduating from college. What challenges in my community and the world most concern me? What do I love to do? What am I good at? And what do I need to learn? Gosh, you could ask yourself those questions about every two years throughout your whole adult life. Imagine where you'd end up. It's lovely. Okay, so I'm not sure who wants to answer this one, but we can't close out this conversation without talking about your concept that I really felt, feel so much. In my my dental practice, we've gotten a reputation for working with children really well. My husband is hilarious with it. He has so much fun with children. They feel so safe with them. And I think he comes at it because he's so darn joyful naturally that he can even make a trip to the dentist joyful for kids. And this is a core fundamental to what you're proposing is that we let's make school meaningful and joyful. Talk to us about that meaning and joy. I'm happy to to take that question because as we were saying before, when your your question and your comment about choices, sometimes the the choices our students feel in school are limited. They're limited to what college should I go to, what job, what career should I go into, and Joy is about expanding those those choices. And, you know, I speak from the experience of an educator and as a a superintendent in the Princeton Public Schools. And when I was first interviewed for that job, the very first question before I was hired, the very first question the board asked me was, how do we help our students graduate happy? Now, this was a district that was incredibly successful in getting students into the very best colleges and the most prestigious careers. But it was also a community that was aware that that kids were, they were under stress. They were feeling anxious. They showed high degree of, of depression. They were doing homework three, four hours a night. They were getting just over six hours of sleep. And there was a problem. We had students who exhibited suicidal ideations and that was not uncommon. And so the community came together. And this is really important, particularly at this at this time when there's so much controversy about schools and they, they seem to be a battleground for what should be taught and how it should be taught. We brought the whole community together, community leaders, parents, students, educators, administrators, teachers, and we said, we want to prepare our students. We recrafted our mission statement. We want to prepare all students to lead lives of joy and purpose as knowledgeable, creative, compassionate citizens of a global society. But that sense of joy and purpose was was fundamental. 
And so much of what happens with our kids is they're always, they're, they're looking at joy and happiness over the next horizon. If I get into a good college, I'll be happy. If, and then if I get a good job, I'll be happy. And if I make a lot of money and have a nice house, I'll be happy. And we just keep pushing that sense of joy over the next horizon. So how do you help students feel a sense of joy in the present moment while they're in school and then for the rest of their lives? And that's where, you know, when you can give them a sense of purpose, when they have an opportunity to make a difference for themselves and for others, to make the world a better place. There is a sense of joy that comes from that. And as I said, like our, our hope is that students are, are asking the question, what problem can I solve? What meaning can I bring to the world versus what career do I want to have? And the solutionary approach is providing that sense of joy. It is that, that focus on making a difference in the world. This conversation could go on and on. I I can't recommend more highly people dive into what you've got there at the at the website. And it just is expansive. It's like a landscape. <laughs> you can get lost there in such a good way. And if you have any interest in education or are there things there for the individual? I, I, what I've noticed is that the pandemic has sort of gotten us a little bit more used to used to be we just left everything to the teacher or the school. You know, I raised my kids with the Khan Academy just supplementing their passions, whatever they were, they thought they were good at. And and that was the only resource that I knew online that I could supplement things with. Is there stuff for ordinary people that they, or can you refer people to ways to incorporate this, even if they're standing alone, even if they're trying to be the, the caregiver or the support network for their kids through these hard times in education? Absolutely. So so many of our resources are for educators, but not all. We have a whole section called Becoming a Solutionary. And anybody who's interested in these ideas and being a solutionary themselves can go to that section of the website. We have a free guidebook, How to Be a Solutionary. We have video about the solutionary process. So anybody can come there and, and go on the path. All right. This is what we need for the future. We need to all go on the path. Thank you guys <laughs> so, so much. So once again, the book is The World Becomes What We Teach. I want a world that understands that sentence. I think everyone wants uh, that world. And you guys, where's the first direct place to send people so they can continue engaging? HumaneEducation.org would be our, our website. And then from there, they can find all the easily find the the resources um, that Zoe is referring to. If they just if they're a parent who wants to understand the process, be a solutionary. There's a site there for educators specifically, and they can find what they're looking for there. Oh, terrific! Well, and we have stuff for students too. Oh, yeah. This is the thing. It's some part of this, we didn't get to talk enough about it, is about the journey, the agency, the journey that kids learn to take on their own. This is the way of the future with as far as finding solutions in our world is that we need systems that um, drive apathy <laughs> to the corner and that give agency, give everybody the confidence to have agency over making the world a better place in whatever way suits their gifts. So thank you both for joining us. I can't, uh, I can't thank you enough. The Goodness Exchange is going to be all about pointing people wherever possible to your ideas and this wonderful opportunity we have. Sort of the pandemic has driven all of us to be real searchers for new educational models. And I'm going to be a, a great supporter of yours from here on out. I hope all the connections that we gave you and you, the show notes for this will contain everything that Zoe and Steve shared with us and anything I might have mentioned. So thank you. I hope the connections that we gave to you and the progress that you feel from this interview could will carry you through the day with the spring in your step and for the next week until we meet again. Thanks so much. 